Whatever you want to do. Uh, welcome to Dystopia tonight. I was speaking to Shelly Herman, who is the author of a, a book called My Peacock Tale. Um, and it is, from what I read from the synopsis, I'll say, you know what? We'll do that. I'll say the book. From what I read in the book, it's fascinating. I love it. Um, I like anybody who had this kind of lifestyle because I feel like you got a glimpse into, you know, television history that none of us have none of us have that unique uh kind of experience and uh but w one of the things i did want to know is what made you decide to write your experiences down in a book i mean it, you got to a point where you were just like i need to get this shit out or or what was the what was the impetus to do it? you know because it is one of those things like i feel like you could for people like us you can only tell your friends the same stories for so long before you're like I need to tell strangers. <laughs> well, it's, it, it was a little bit of that. It, it's interesting you keyed into that because um, I've been very, very lucky that I've had the same core group of friends since I started as a page back on June 21st, 1976, the longest wow. day for trivia fans <laughs> out there. And um, we see each other at least once a month. We, we celebrate our birthdays. We watch award shows together. I, We've gone to our parents' funerals. I mean, we've had all of these life experiences together. And when the pandemic hit, we missed each other a lot. And then thank goodness for Zoom. So yeah. we connected that way. And then we realized we could reach out to our friends who had moved out of California, where I'm based. And we started hearing their stories instead of our same old tired stories. Right. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, there's two Freddie Prince stories. And oh, there's this story about this person who wronged them. And oh, you had a Me Too experience also. And and it was like a big jigsaw puzzle at a certain point. And people kept saying, somebody ought to write this down. And and I I've always thought that oh, like only like really smart people wrote books. So <laughs> I didn't know if I was capable of doing that. So You're selling yourself short there. I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, I really did think it was for something with people that had like tweed jackets with, you know, elbow patches and cigars and things. Yeah. Um, but um, I joined a writer's group who were not in the entertainment industry at all. And I ran some of the stories by them and they said, we like the stories, but tell us how you felt about these experiences rather than just reporting on them. And that's how the book came about. Right. Can I tell you something? I love that you touched on what you thought writers should be and how they should look and feel. Because when I was when I was coming up uh, and when I was younger, I always thought what you did talent wise is you felt like it. I thought people who wrote for a living felt like writers. And I had no idea that feeling like a writer means stressed, anxious, uh, feeling like you're no good, suffering through <laughs> imposter syndrome, um, never doing. And by the way, I didn't realize also until I started doing stand up comedy and then started writing for other people and writing for different things that a lot of it is you're not sitting down writing like you're writing in your head 
a lot of the times or jotting stuff shit down on little notes or whatever and then accumulating it later. So that's interesting that you said that you had a perception of what writers were because it's nice to see that like you you wrote a beautiful book. Oh, thank you. And and it's and it's but it's funny I like hearing this is probably sounds terrible, but I do like hearing that you were a little like, mm, I don't know if I'm a writer because that makes me feel like she's a writer. You know what I mean? Like, well, it's I'll, a good I'll, feeling. I'll tell you what else helped a lot. And it was an, another Zoom experience is um, I'm a member of Andy Goldberg's improv comedy group here in the Los Angeles area. Oh, and nice. I think you have your comedy background. I have this improv group and it really does free you up. To, mm. to, to think outside the box a little bit. And if you do have an unusual observation, it, it helps you express it in a way that, that makes it funny and accessible. I mean, the book is funny, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, <laughs> it's got good sex in it, mm -hmm. really good sex. And it's got nostalgia, and, and it is a little bit like Alice Through the Looking Glass, except it was me through the cathode tube kind of vibe to mm. it. So I, I, I want people to, to laugh when they read it and, and, and maybe someday think maybe they too might want to try to be a page at NBC. Yeah. Well, upon doing this and you were reflecting on like what it was to be a page when you started, did you think about reaching out to, or did you get to talk to any younger pages? Yes. In fact, it's so great. Um, I had a book signing recently at Barnes and Noble in Burbank and this this young perky little thing came up to me and she just said <laughs> i saw you on tv promoting this book signing and i just had to come meet you and i just looked at her just you know full of hope and ex excitement and you know and I, we were comparing notes about because it is a little bit different than when i was a page because um the nbc burbank facility itself where, where johnny carson did his show yeah. and hollywood squares and sanford and son and and the soap opera days of our lives that building doesn't belong to NBC anymore. It's owned by Warner Brothers. So we don't have they don't have the tours that go through there. They don't have the tapings. So what this young lady Heidi was able to to do with the page program is um, do like basically three month internships in different facets of the NBC Universal Empire. So she might go work at Bravo for three months or work wow. in press and publicity. Um, and, and try to get an experience that way. But man, we were like free range pages. We, we, we wandered those hallways. We had the keys to the kingdom. Um, mm. We just had a blast. Yeah. I was wondering too, because you have a lot of, uh, you know, shenanigans that obviously you guys did back in the day. And uh, I know the only other stories I've ever heard of from pages kind of either misbehaving or, uh, you know, doing some mischievous shit is through Aubrey Plaza's stories occasionally on like Conan uh -huh. when she worked there as a page. Did you, I mean, do you, do you find that kind of, did you, could you relate to that kind of stuff? Do you know any of the, those things? Like there's like, she would lie and make up stuff about, you know, whatever was going on. Yeah. I figured. Well, we had to lie because we had to entertain a group of tourists for an hour while they were touring the hallways. And if you were lucky enough to get the one o'clock tour, um, we would be able to <laughs> position the people at a certain point when Johnny Carson would arrive. So at least they could see him. Right. Uh, but no, there was like a little area. In, we called it the midway area where Johnny parked his car and there was some hills behind there. And we would say that's where Julie Andrews twirled at the beginning of Sound of Music 
or uh, that's Walton's Mountain. Uh, there was one of the one of the pages told me that she had uh, overheard another of the pages say we can't go into Studio Five because they've got it filled up with water because they're shooting Sea Hunt, and, and Sea Hunt had been off the air for decades at that point. So yeah, we we had to do something to, to for our little dog and pony show, but it didn't well. really seem to bother people because. While we're telling them that, we're also saying, and each of these tiles rents for 75 cents. And if they lit up all of the lights in here for an hour, it would power enough electricity for the state of Rhode Island for a week. And, you know, we, <laughs> we didn't have some really insanely boring information to pass along to them, too. Yeah, that's incredible. Who is your favorite? I mean, you know, I know you just mentioned Freddie uh, Prinz and all those people. Was there somebody that you were looking forward to seeing or hoping you would see again when they would come through the door, you know, at NBC and stuff? Was there a, because uh, I know, you know, some people have really great stories about people being super nice to them and they're, and they're, you know, the Hollywood stars aren't who they seem. And I'm sure there were some that were like, not so nice. Who was your favorite? Was there somebody you look forward to? You're the first person who's asked me that question. So it gave me a moment to think. And the first person whose name popped into my head was Paul Williams. Really? Um, oh, that's nice. He's a short singer songwriter personality wrote um, the song evergreen for, with Barbara Streisand for a star is born. Um, mm -hmm. It was, was a mainstay on, on television back then. And um, he was always so nice to the pages. And um, I remember this one instance where my friend Pete Hammond, who, is a very successful writer for Deadline Hollywood now. Pete is oh, an nice. avid collector of memorabilia. And he had a, a picture of Paul Williams dressed up like a nutcracker um, soldier from when he was on the Smothers Brothers a few years before and Pete wanted Paul oh. to sign it. And Paul looked at the picture and he was just astonished looking at it. He said, see how thin I am in this picture? I had just been drafted into the Vietnam War. And they said, if I got below 110 pounds, I couldn't be drafted. And he said, and I was starving myself so I wouldn't have to go to war. Wow, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, oh. we got personal things like that with people. And then there were other people that we were just happy if they were going to be like anytime Lucy would be in the building, Lucille Ball. I mean, that right. was always exciting. John Wayne, Bob Hope, Dick Van Dyke, Andy Kaufman, mm. whenever any of the stars, um, the, the rock stars would be there for Midnight Special. I mean, that was always, you know, a uh, great time, too, because, you know, we got to just stand around and listen to rock and roll music and get paid for it all day. So that was really mm -hmm. fun. That's incredible. I mean, that I, I get I watch those kind of things and I get jealous of the time that you guys lived in because that was like it seemed like everything was um fresh and new and exciting like I, I watched those documentaries on um i think I, I think they were around during COVID. i don't know if they just came out or maybe they came out a little bit before but cnn ran these specials about decades right and i think mm -hmm. tom hanks had probably produced it and they were great and there was like 60s 70s just in the music industry alone and of course they're talking about laurel canyon and all that kind of stuff but i mean even in the television world it just seemed like that kind of stuff it's like the advent of you know TV and 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 figuring out those kind of mediums where it just probably seemed like everybody was flying by the seat of their pants and having a blast doing it. Um, well, it so. was like a neighborhood because you really could like just drop in and oh, it's lunch hour. I'll just watch what the Hollywood Squares people are doing or go over to Wheel of Fortune and see what they're doing. And oh, right. I'll, I'll steal a bagel from over at the Tonight Show. You know, it was it really was <laughs> to just drop in and, and see people kind of atmosphere. Um, right. And, uh, and I, that part I miss, I mean, it, it really was fun. And then kind of the world started getting a little, 
scarier and you know now everything is metal detectors and searching people's purses and don't bring cell phones into certain places and it was it was just and you know maybe they needed more security back then because even when when i would work on the tonight show when johnny was doing his monologue the pages had their backs turned to johnny and we were like looking up in the audience to see if anybody had a weapon or somebody was going to charge the stage you know to hurt johnny or something like that because um, again, no metal detectors. So, you know, yeah. part of the job description was take a bullet for Johnny. So she, good, good God. I wouldn't even think of that. Would you, was, did it ever come like close? Did you ever think like, holy shit, this is the night. I wasn't there, but one night a person did come down from the audience. Cause after Johnny would do the monologue, uh, then the band would play and Johnny would just usually wave and ask anybody if they had a question in the audience mm-hmm. and then go to his desk. And then uh, a guy did rush the stage he wasn't going to hurt Johnny, but eh, he shouldn't have been rushing the stage. He just wanted to shake his hand, but oh um, the, he got tackled by the stage managers and taken off by the police. So, wow. Yeah. The, no, there were, it was, I mean, there was times too. I remember I was there once when um, one of the singers on the show at rehearsal, pretty sure it was at rehearsal. No, you know, it must, well, cause the show, the show did not go on that night, but she had a massive stroke. And oh so God. a bunch of people came and, and helped her. Yeah, I think it was during rehearsal because they lowered the curtain. I'm trying to remember that now. But um, there were people there, security type people, but nothing like it is now. Okay. What was your What was your personal impression of Johnny? Because I know they were, they were like, you know, there's been a million books and there's been a million people who've known him, you know, celebrity wise, like through those eyes, but also he went through fluctuations of being, you know, an avid alcoholic, but just a functioning alcoholic, I guess you could say. And then several divorces. What what, what was your impression of his demeanor overall to staff, to certain celebs? I really, really admired his professionalism. I Mm. don't know how he did it for as long as he did. Um, When I first started, the show was 90 minutes long four days a week and he was just taking Mondays off at that point. And it was just, it was fun because like, again, when the, when the tours were there and they could see Johnny arrive, like in his street clothes, he was just wearing like, like an Izod shirt and like tucked into his Sansa belt pants and, you know, good physique, you know, good guy. Um, And I like to watch him rehearse when he was doing like the mighty Carson art players or a silly little skit. You know, they would they would they would start rehearsing at about two o'clock in the afternoon and, and tape the show at five thirty to go out live that evening. And I like to see because I felt like that that was the real Johnny that I was watching is how he interacted with Bobby Quinn, the director and the actors that he was working with. And he was always very respectful of the writers and um, he might contribute a joke here or there. But the, the structure of whatever the skit was, he he honored that with the people. Um, he was, he was, you know, a lot of people think too, like, Oh, well, Johnny just worked an hour and a half a day. He was up at the crack of dawn, read many newspapers would call into the studio and say, Hey, um, there's something about Jimmy Carter or air traffic controllers or whatever it was going to be. He started October 1st, 1962. So if you think about the span of history, the -hmm. assassinations that took place, the war, uh, different economic crisis, you know, gas shortages, things like that. Johnny got us through all of that. 
Um, yeah. He was he was our nightlight. We watched the monologue, and if if Johnny thought things were going to be okay, we could all sleep a little bit better. Sure. And I, I to his testament, I mean, he remained. I, people always say and kind of toss it out there. I mean, I used to watch it with my grandfather, probably mostly whatever he had taped or reruns or after the fact. I mean, I, it was like the older stuff. I I was still, you know, I was born in 84, so I could still see, you know, him leading up to him retiring. So I kind of knew who he was and stuff, but I didn't know anything about his politics. And a lot of people either claim he was strictly apolitical. You could never tell, you know, where he stood or who he was. And I guess, you know, maybe in that time, that was totally true. When I see stuff now, I maybe I'm just, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, imparting my own kind of bias on it. I feel like I kind of could, even through little subtle jabs or jokes, or just the way he interacted with guests and, and what he talked about, maybe what his politics were. Maybe I'm batshit insane, and I have no idea. But do you feel like, I mean, you know, he? I, I feel like he was pretty much against the war, you know, like, I don't know. I, I think he hit it, but I, I feel like that was who he was, you know, deep well, down. Well, you know I'll ask you the same thing about Bob Hope. Ooh. Did you know Bob Hope's? As an entertainer, did you know what his politics were? No. Him, I him, I find pretty, uh, he, he was pretty much an enigma. Yeah, good word. Yeah, thank you. The password is enigma. <laughs> uh, but I think that, I, I think both of them um, skated along those issues, but wanted to be equal opportunity offenders and I think that yeah. they would balance out their monologues with, I, I'll do three Republican jokes, three Democrat jokes, and the jokes will be, whatever the jokes are, it's the people are stupid. Yes. You know, that's what it was more than just my guy can beat up your guy kind of jokes. Right. Um, when I asked you about who you liked, I wanted to ask you, uh, this, this is the part of the show, by the way, I do get sidetracked. Uh, oh, <laughs> shiny you, object. Woo. <laughs> can you tell all the buttons? Um, so, uh, no, but, but who was, who was somebody that you did not like the exact opposite? So you told, you told me Paul Williams was somebody that you enjoyed seeing. Was there somebody that you were like, this fucking guy? Well, um, it's in the book, and I I don't mean to say this as like one of those, oh, she's just teasing it because she's trying to sell no, her no. books, but it's important to understand the context, and I don't know mm -hmm. that I'll do it total justice, but before I got started as a page, um, I met McLean Stevenson. We had a friendship. Wow. He, he hit on me. I made it okay. abundantly clear that that wasn't going to happen. And then when I started at NBC, um, he saw me there and I was trying to do what we were supposed to do as pages. I was, I, I would observe the TV show he was working on. It was a sitcom called the McLean Stevenson show. Yeah. And I would sit in the bleachers watch the rehearsal and try to come up with story ideas. Cause you know, maybe someday if the show gets picked up for a second season, I can pitch them my story ideas and remember to thank uh, McLean when I do my Emmy speech and, you know, <laughs> be sure to take him to lunch sometime and thank him for everything he's going to do for me. You know, I had mm. the whole scenario in my head. Um, he obviously had another scenario in his head because uh, he invited me to the office. I, I, I got a call. Shelly McLean wants to see you went up to his office, um, did a little chit chat, and he had one of those buttons underneath the desk and the door closed. Oh, get the fuck out. Uh, I wanted to. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and and I think a sane woman or a little more um, sophisticated woman might have done something differently than me, but I just started laughing. And he's like, well, well, what are you laughing at? And I said, well, <laughs> that's like something that would happen to Doris Day and you were on the Doris Day show and, and, and you're such a masher and you're on mash and all of a sudden, and then he pounced. Oh, and wow. uh, I, uh, I was scared and I, I figured I had to say something or do something that would make him as scared as me. And I looked up at him and I said, listen, we can go ahead and do this and it would be great because I'm a really good lay, <laughs> but I might be late getting down to the tonight show. And when they say, what are you doing? I was going to say, Oh, I was busy, you know, with McLean Stevenson upstairs, or you can um, get off of me mm. and we will never speak of this again. So he thought for a moment, let me go. Went downstairs, walked kind of slowly. And then when I got out of sight, I would, <laughs> And I went down to the Tonight Show and um, my friend Pete again, uh, he saw me that I was upset mm. and uh, he said, what's going on? And I told him and he goes, oh, he does that to all the girls. He followed Sandy Peterson down to the, the page lounge just the other day. And then I started getting jealous. <laughs> I'm like, what? you know, and it was just such it just was such a mind game for me because, you know, I was a little 20 year old page Roman yeah, yeah. always. I, I, I wasn't in, I, it, and, and for a long time, I kept thinking, what did I do wrong? Did I give mixed signals? And I was like, no, 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 no. Right. That was going to happen. Whatever I thought or did that was going to happen. And, right. um, and, and a couple other women have come forward to say they had stories like that too. And again, 1976, people just didn't report those things. Yeah, yeah. With McLean Stevens or just in general in, in, in oh, NBC? with some of the executives also. You know, oh, okay. I had experiences with them too. Again, it was 1976, 1977. Nobody reported these things to human resources. It was a different time. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Do you? I have a question about that time and the things that happened then too, because it does, you know, it's terrible either way. And it's great that there's an outlet for it. How do you feel like there was a, because it happened so frequently, you guys had to get over like where there was a where there was was there a bit more resilience maybe for or, or did you guys just clear it out of your heads because it does seem like it happened you brushed it off you went on it didn't linger like like how long did that something like that stay with you did it affect like you didn't obviously quit you didn't want to leave uh, you weren't traumatized that, you know that's a couple different questions sure. we, we brushed it off how long did it linger yesterday Okay. Okay. See, that's, I see that is, but that's great. I, I, that's the kind of thing I think people need to know and understand in here. Cause I think sometimes when people say it, they think, Oh, she's writing about it now in a book and it's, you know, she probably just thought of it for the book, but no, this is something that still has stayed with you for your, the rest of the, your entire life. Well, and it's something that I, I mentioned to other women too. I mean, I, I hate it when, when women are criticized and it's somehow thought of as, well, that she was, you know, she put herself in that position. What do you expect? Um, sometimes we have to be in those positions of if somebody is a, uh, in a power position and says, come to my office because yeah. I need to talk business with you. I mean, we weren't at a hotel. We weren't at a, you know, a pool right. or a spa or something. I was at an office. 
Yeah, and some of those I was going to say some of those positions are just called fucking work. Yeah. Like they're just living your lives. Like that is that is the uh, total bullshit when people do that kind of stuff. Um Well, and I, and I, that's I can like, guarantee you that that men and women listening to this have both had these experiences. I mean, there was yeah. guys coming on to guys, women coming on to women. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's not unique to the entertainment industry, but it just gets blown out of proportion because it is the entertainment industry. Right. Well, at least his show got canceled because that did not go well. All of them <laughs> got canceled. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the same time, you're talking about sexual harassment. I had it um, chapters in the uh, about Bill Cosby in the book, too, because um, there it, it even went beyond. You know, he would do the things about walking through the hallway and pressing himself against women. That there, there was that thing that was going on. But um, when we were working on the show, um, I, I got my, my, my feminist rankles up at one time because I, I marched into our, our boss's office and I said, why is it only the guys get to work on The Tonight Show when Bill Cosby's here? We women can work just as hard and just as well as the men. Little mm -hmm. did I know that our boss, Eva Hawkins, was protecting us because there had been so many complaints even back then about Bill Cosby's actions, even to the point that the pages didn't go into his dressing room anymore to, to for any pre-interview stuff. And then Jeez. even some of the people from the Tonight Show didn't go into his dressing room anymore because he was inappropriate. Wow. See, that's one of the things that like when that all came out, I was kind of dumbfounded by the interviews I had seen um, you know, like on Larry King and on a couple of things where he's openly and comfortably talking about slipping women. What did they call it? Um, Roofie? Spanish fly or something like that. Oh, well, Spanish oh, fly. He, oh, he yes. called it that. oh, but like, but when you know what it is, I mean, like, of course I, when I was a kid, I didn't know what the fuck he was talking about when I was a kid, but like, I'm like, man, this is, that's how, that's the level of, of comfortability they had that they gave them back then where they were just openly talking about doing it. And I'm like, that's insane. But I, I, uh, it's nice that, what well, I'm sorry, what was the name of the woman who, who protected you guys there? Her name was Eba Hawkins. And did she, you ever speak to her after that? Like, did you ever talk to her again after all that? Oh yeah. But again, it was one of those things that, you know, she, she was a, a big den mother to all of us. So that's, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we got it. We knew what she was doing. It didn't have to be expressed. Very um, cool. You know, she had it, she had to protect her pages. Mm-hmm. That's insane. The Cosby thing is is the most egregious. Like that is just that's just fucking. Wild. And I'm sure there's like, you know, one of those things like with the Cosby stuff when it was going on, we were like, was Freddie Roman a creep? You know what I mean? Like we were like, how many of these guys are like? Because they all kind of nod and talk about that shit, like the Spanish, like that whatever that was, or like a Mickey, or like all those languages that are very nice words for roofies. Yeah, were like very common language back then, and you just don't realize it until like until much later and you're just like jesus christ that was uh uh like a hor horrible time well and, and, <laughs> an, and another weird thing not to just pile on certain performers but no, every, go for everybody it. kind of had not everybody some people had quirks and one of them was um richard pryor had a very short-lived variety show at nbc yeah. and um the pages had certain jobs if, if you were the oic you were outside in charge you were the, the page mm -hmm. with the clipboard and, and you had to get the people lined up a certain way. And Richard wasn't feeling well. And it, the taping kept getting pushed back, pushed back. And the lines of people got bigger and bigger because Richard's people were responsible 
well, he wanted them to be responsible for distributing the tickets. So the place was overbooked by a lot. And just before he was ready to tape, he said that he only wanted black people to sit in the first three rows. And we had 400 people waiting in line, not all of whom were black in the first section. Right. So his friend, Paul Moody, smart man, he went mm-hmm. to the back of the line and started pulling out people and seating them in those first couple of rows so that, that Richard would be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, we did this for the Johnny Carson show also where Johnny wanted young, happy, excited, youthful people seated in the first couple of rows. Cause with the bright lights, you really can't see much beyond that, but it would help him with the monologue. If there was people that were responding and happy and it gave him energy, uh, Jay Leno did the same thing and he'd run around hands, hand bumping and fist bumping everybody. So it wasn't unique to Richard, but it was just part of what, as you, with a comic, you know, you want to get really good uh, feedback from the audience to, to keep you going. Yeah. I, I briefly, when I lived out in LA, I, my friend got me um, like a, a gig uh, seating people at Nikki Glazer show. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, in my first time doing any of this shit, and I could not wrap my head around the, the directions to seat. And it was literally attractive couples up front. And anybody, and I was like, you want me to pick out the, like, and I felt like the biggest piece of shit just being like, Ugh. like, and then, and they would literally correct me and be like, no, no, no. Uh, she's hot. Like, cause he's too tall or he's whatever. So you don't want to put them up. And I'd be like, Oh my God, this is going to come back at me in the world. But it's wild. Like did, the, did, the they, did they call them want. DFs when you were doing it? Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. DFs down fronts. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I and, was and like, we oh had to make God. sure that, you know, like, you know, uncle Murray wasn't off in the bathroom and it really just was the two of them that were a younger couple <laughs> to be seated. Yeah. It, right. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. W- was there any part of the book, um, like how good are you with separating yourself from um, looking at things objectively? Was it like, cause I know like you, you talked about the McLean Stevenson thing in the book, the Cosby stuff, when you were revisiting any of this, was there a point where you were like, I got to take a little bit of a break. This is too painful a memory or this is too, or just a, a sweet memory. That's just too sad to go through. Like how good are you at being like, that was my life. Then this is my life now. And I can write about it objectively without any uh, pause. There are two chapters about sex Mm. and i i wanted to be careful with them because um both of these guys are married now and in one instance i know his wife and kids and they never knew we dated and in another instance the guy's a real schmuck and i didn't feel like his family should get the shrapnel from that so I was very careful writing those chapters so as not to actually reveal the person's identity, but to still tell. But you're going to do it here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I mean, but, they're, they're, but it's also um, what's better than like stupid, clumsy sex when you're in your 20s. You know, it's, yeah. it's those kinds of stories. It's and, and they're I'm 38. Hot. I'm still having it. Yeah, they're, they're hot stories, too. The other thing I was sensitive to is. Um, we mentioned earlier, there's a chapter about Freddie Prinze in the book. And when we reached out on zoom to start visiting with our friends, two of the women had very decidedly different experiences with Freddie. One was a very pristine version of who he was. 
and the other is very dark. Mm. And both of the women hadn't really chatted with each other about this and them talking to one another helped them kind of figure out a lot of these things that they had suppressed for a while and, and the hurt that they had. And I wrote the chapters up and then I, I wrote a letter to each of them and I said, a professional journalist would never show the subject of her article, anything that is being written about them attach, please find what I've written about you and let me know if it's too much. Um, and I won't do it. And, and both of them signed off on it. That's very sweet. Well, ultimately, and I feel like that's... ultimately this book is a love letter to my friends because, um, we are a very unique group of people and, and I want to yeah. celebrate that men and women. Um, I could call any, any of these knuckleheads on the phone right now or text when they get back to me immediately. What do you need? What can I do for you? <laughs> have you been back? Back where? To NBC, any of the stuff? Have you been, have you been on, like, have you, have you gone, you know, back on a tour? Like, have you, all of you, like, together, have you thought about doing that? Well, about 10 years ago, we took what was the last tour. And, oh. um, like, because the facility has since been sold, uh, all of NBC moved up to Universal Studios when, when they consolidated. And okay. one of the things we discovered, and there's pictures of it in the book, is we went down to our old page lounge and it had been converted into a private area for Johnny Carson. He, his secretary was there, but he also, there was a, a, a vanity and a shower and, um, you know, a dressing area for Johnny and, and Jay Leno used it afterward as a gym. So it wasn't mm. all just in pristine condition, but what mm -hmm. did remain is there was a secret tunnel that oh, people could be this. brought in and taken out of that was underneath the area where they did the tonight show. And, um, I had a blackberry at the time and I'm like, take a picture of it. <laughs> like, while I'm in there, like, Oh my God, we never knew about this. And, um, <laughs> When I was writing the book, one of the staff members from The Tonight Show told me that uh, at the end of Johnny's final show, when he bid everyone a good night for the last time, that he went down to the office with his wife and they went out the tunnel underneath the driveway area into the administration building, out to a waiting helicopter in the parking lot where they took off and they went to his Malibu home where they had a big wrap party with let's Brown and the band of renown so that Johnny didn't have to face everybody after he'd said good night to everyone. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so I have incredible. pictures of that in the book. That's incredible. Yeah. And see, now I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick this up by the way, no matter what I know it's, I know it's lost in the mail somewhere, but I'm getting it. Um, cause this is, this is the kind of stuff that I wish I could have gone kind of gotten to see firsthand. I mean, that's, that's a, you know, even for me, like, it's a golden era of television, anything that, that kind of sets things off. And I know Steve Allen and stuff like that, but you know, Carson was really like, that was like when all the comedians kind of blossomed in a way, like, like you were talking about Bob Hope before. And I find him kind of interesting because there's a lot of people who believe Bob Hope was, um, you know, the first original standup, right? There's some, there's a couple of people who, people who will name some other obscure acts, but like, uh, you know, Bob had other guys writing for him. Oh, yeah. I feel like, the original standups, um, even like, uh, like a Robert Klein who's been on the show and he's become a good friend, but like, you know, and he will kind of dismiss it a little bit too, but I still feel like he was like the father of like 
writing your own, like the modern observational thing that kind of set off all those comics on, on Carson, you know, on that path, like him prior Carlin, obviously, but like those guys like wrote their own material, had their own opinion. And then you can kind of see the trajectory on Carson show of like Paul Reiser, Jerry Seinfeld, you know, like all those guys, Stephen Wright, mm-hmm. um, uh, you Ellen, know, um, rivers, Ellen, Roseanne, um, Roseanne, especially, I mean, you know, those all Roseanne, Brett Butler, um, um, was on, Car- um, you know, all those people were just amazing. Well, but it's, that was- it's interesting you bring up the, the, the comedy aspect of the Carson show too, because there was a man by the name of Jim McCauley, who was the talent coordinator who would look for the new comics for Johnny. Mm-hmm. And occasionally Johnny would go to the comedy store too, but you know, that he, he was a huge distraction when he was there. So it would right. be better to have Jim scout these people. And again, this was like long before people would send videotapes in or anything like that. Eventually it got to that point. But right. um, a lot of comics didn't like Jim because it was like, come on, man, really? give me a break already. You've been scouting me for two years. What's the deal? Come on, I'm ready. I'm ready. But mm-hmm. Jim knew the difference between nightclub funny and TV funny. And that's mm-hmm. what he would try to instill in people and, and, and try to mentor these people along the way. And the best example of this was, was again, back to Freddie Prinz, who had been doing stand-up since he was 15 years old. And Jim saw him, helped him, got a solid five minutes together. And, and Freddie shows up to do the Tonight Show. And, you know, he's got long hair. He's part Puerto Rican. He didn't look like Buddy Hackett or Shecky Green or any of these, mm. you know, guys that were the regular comics on the show. And yeah. Fred DeCordova said, he's not going out there. He's, you know, he looks like a bum. He's not going out there. And Jim lobbied real hard for him. And there was another producer who perhaps had a little bit more sway than Fred DeCordova, a guy named Peter LaSalle. Peter LaSalle, yeah, I've heard of him. Peter is a fine, honorable, excellent human being. Oh, that's so good to hear. And Peter basically said, sit down, you know, Fred DeCordova, Freddie Prinz is going out there. And the mm-hmm. tape is available to watch on YouTube of you, you see a star being born right before your eyes and Johnny loved him. And, oh, and Jim wow. McCauley's instinct was a hundred percent correct. Nice. J- Jim McCauley and Peter Sally are two of the dudes I think that I hear about the most behind. I mean, uh, um, um, the other gentleman that you mentioned too, Fred uh, I, I, you know, yeah, DeCorva. Um, but Peter LaSalle, I feel like has been instrumental in like John Stewart's career and Craig Ferguson's career and Jim McCauley, like a lot of the comics that I've spoken to and had have had interactions with him, um, you know, and, and some of them, you know, kind of exactly match up with what you just said about them being like, come on, man, like, you know, you're 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 not giving me my shot or whatever his due. And some of them I've, I've heard a bit of a lecherous tales. I think of Jim McCauley, like, you know, not paying attention to the comics and with some girl in the audience where they're like, God damn it, he's here to see me tonight. And he's like making out with this girl in the audience or whatever, you know. Um, but well, like, perhaps yeah, if that that's... comics act had been more riveting. He would have felt compelled <laughs> to be distracted elsewhere. Very nice. He never uh, he never was like that with me. I went to the comedy store that's with good. him often. To, and that's why I got to, you know, here's a guy who had to work all day and he was at the comedy clubs till like one and two in the morning. And I would right. see him pull the comics aside 
and I couldn't hear what he was saying, but I, he was very intense with them. And I'm sure, I'm sure it was things like lose this, add this, talk more about this, you know, clean mm-hmm. your hair up, you know, whatever it was going to be. He knew yeah. what Johnny would like. Did you ever see anybody there and give him like, a, like, hey, I think maybe you'd like this person? There's one guy that I saw there that I just thought was, I don't know why he didn't break faster, but there's a guy named uh, Harry Basil. Do you ever know oh, okay. Harry? Yeah. I had, yeah. I thought he was like the funniest thing in the world that I, and I don't know if he ever made it onto the tonight show. Cause I, I was only there for my 18 months being a page, mm-hmm. but I just thought he was hysterical, but I think he was too big for the tonight show. I mean, his comedy was uh, prop humor, action humor. Um, and, and one of the things about TV is um, you, you have to, people have to talk. It just can't be people doing, prop things or shtick things. So I'm sure there was an element of, especially at the Tonight Show, you've got to have entertainers who are talking the whole time so that people don't fall asleep at night. So there, maybe there was that aspect to it, but I really liked him a lot. Yeah. What did you, did you have any passions like uh, when you were a kid, like you thought you were going to be something else and wound up in this career? I was lucky enough to go with a group of my friends from Agora High School to a taping of midnight special when I was 17 years old. And right. when I saw that there was this job, they called them pages. They were ushering shows. The only experience I had on my resume was being an usher at the Valley music theater in Woodland Hills. And, um, I thought, well, that's enough to get me a job there. You know, little did I know that the chances of getting into Harvard are better than becoming an NBC page, but, um, I, it's an excruciatingly long story. It's in the book, but basically Mm -hmm. I was working at the department store Sears and one of the gals who was kind of the wallflower of the group, um, she asked if we wanted to go to Vegas for free to go see Elvis because her dad got us tickets. So we were like, "Uh, yeah, we're going to go. And we piled in two different cars, drove out to Vegas about four and a half hour drive from here saw Elvis at the Hilton. And if you saw the Austin Butler movie, it was exactly like it. It was just wow. the, the energy, the sound, the, the frenzy, it, it was all that. And, uh, we were sitting ringside and he was just getting a little heavy then and sweating a lot. And he would do a thing where he'd have a scarf around his neck and, and he would pat his brow and lean over. And then the woman would take the scarf and that would be her souvenir that she would get to keep. And, mm the three girls that we were with after the show was over and they did say Elvis has left the building. Uh, <laughs> they, they took off and they were going to go have more fun that I think I was capable of having being 20 years old at that point. And so mm. I sat with the girl who got us the tickets. Cause I thought, well, this is really rude for them to dump her. So um, we talked about our hopes and dreams and she had no hopes and she had no dreams, but, uh, <laughs> I said I wanted to, you know, be a page at NBC, and it turned out her mother's best friend was a big shot at NBC, and oh. she came into Sears and saw me and said, uh, "I'll recommend you to Eva Hawkins for the job," and uh, that's how I got in. I love stories like that, and I don't know that they happen exactly that way anymore. Like I think I was kind of spoiled by like every stand-up book I read from like people because it, it seems like there was not like 
you know, that stuff happened every day to everybody is obviously significant. Right. And it was a significant thing that happened to you. But I also feel like in just the world of comedy, too, it was like, yeah, I was at this club and uh, Belzer saw me and nodded me over and then did whatever. And now that is I mean, there's too many comedians, but I don't think that I think those days are I missed that boat and I'm really upset about it. Well, I uh, actually <laughs> did a bit with um, and Andy Kaufman was around a lot at NBC back in the day. And oh. And again, it's in the book, more detail. But sure, Andy sure. asked me to do a bit with him at the improv one night. And I, my aspiration at that point was to become maybe a writer. I hadn't really thought of being an actor because a, only tall, skinny, beautiful women did those kinds of things, not little short girls. So Andy asked me to do this bit with him at the improv. Mm -hmm. And I can honestly say I didn't understand any of what he was doing <laughs> and um when it was over we ran outside and he's jumping up and down like a school girl thinking this was like the the best thing in the world it was kind of a precursor to the wrestling bits that he eventually started oh, wow. doing but here i did have somebody who was a comic say hey come help me with this and i was like andy i don't understand what you're doing it's too late at night i'm not getting paid i i have to go to work in the morning i can't do this with you <laughs> And, and then the other funny part of that is flash forward. He's, he told me that uh, he got hired to do the sitcom and, and didn't want to do it, but his manager said it would be good. It would expand, you know, people knowing who he was, blah, blah, blah. The show was taxi. Yeah. And several years later, I married one of the cast members from taxi, um, an actor named Randall Carver, who was on the first season of taxi playing John Burns. So oh, my, no way. So Sorry, my friend, I Andy, not... yeah, my friend Andy says, don't watch the show. So I had to catch Taxi in reruns because my friend Andy said it wasn't a good show. Oh, my God. That is wild. I had no idea. Do you ever like kind of, I don't know, like when you're reconnecting with your friends at that time or whatever, like, did you know what was happening? Did you understand? Like, I always ask people this kind of thing because I always find it funny if my friends and I are missing out on that kind of stuff now, too. But do you understand where you were at the time, like who you were around, who you were surrounded by, like how awesome you were? Like, did you get a chance back then to ever go like, holy shit, this is fucking amazing? Or is it only in retrospect? Do you feel like, you know, you got to be a part of something special? At the time, I was kind of holding on with my bare hands, hoping nobody would catch on to the fact I was a fraud. Uh, <laughs> because um, it was just a wonderful place to hang around. I didn't want mm. to leave. Um, we would we would gather uh, in the Page Lounge uh, on Saturday evenings at 8.30 at night. We'd bring in pizzas and, and, and wine and things like that. And we would watch the early feed of Saturday Night Live. And then we could go home again and watch it later. But we felt like, ooh, how privileged we are to get to see that. And we could call people and say, oh, they're doing the Coneheads tonight or, you know, whatever it was going to be. You know, we, were, we had the inside track for that. Um, right. I think none of us ever took it for granted. But to say that I felt um, more, better, different, special, I was just really, really trying to do my job and do it well. And mm. in hindsight... I, I realize now, especially with people who've read the book and went, oh my God, I never knew this stuff about you. And, uh, and, and, and some of my friends who didn't even pursue the, the entertainment industry, they were saying how the experiences they had there when they went out into the private sector, how, how much it benefited them. 
So right. we, we all appreciate it so much. Was it, um, when you left, you said you were there for 18 months, you did that kind of thing. Uh, was it to you just another kind of like, hey, I'm going on and moving on to something else? Or did you uh, did you kind of mourn the loss kind of a thing? Because I feel like that's, I, I, you know, I feel like that would have been kind of hard. I didn't leave NBC after the 18 mm. months. I, oh, okay. I, I, you know, the old saying, break a leg is supposed to be one of those, you know, good luck things. Sure. And it kind of turned into a bad luck and then a good luck thing. Because um, I wasn't able to give tours around the building. So they mm. put me up in the story department where I was reading scripts and books in with an idea like, hey, if something was really good, I would recommend it. Um, and there was okay. one thing I did recommend and CBS did it. So I knew my instincts were right, but somebody else grabbed it up first. Wow. And, um, Do you remember what it was? It was called Till Death Us Do Part. It was a book about Vincent, Vincent Bugliosi who was known for writing about the Manson murders. Um, mm -hmm. It was a book about another murder that took place in the Burbank, Glendale, Pasadena area where I was living at the time. Wow. Um, and I was fascinated by it. And yeah, they just, uh, CBS made a movie out of it. Um, Holy shit. But um, while I was working in that department, I met a woman who was dating one of the vice presidents at NBC. And she knew that my time was, you know, getting pretty well, getting, you know, time's up. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she said, why don't you go to work for my boyfriend? He needs an executive assistant. So uh, that that's my next step up. But it was not because I was so fabulous at being a secretary is that I could um, monitor his phone calls. And if women were calling him, I could tell her. Oh, my God, that's crazy. So and she knew I wouldn't fool around. That's cool. So I was safe. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So wait, was it was it ever like? Did you ever catch him doing anything? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, that's a that's a that's a pretty cool position to be in, though. Yeah, and then um, I worked for another vice president who was a, a, a lovely gentleman, uh, Michael Brockman, who was head of daytime programming, and mm -hmm. that was my next job at NBC. Then I left, worked every job imaginable in the entertainment industry. <clears throat> hosting monster truck shows, running teleprompters, um, anything they'd pay me for so that I could still learn as I was going along in life. I mean, right. I really felt there was no job too small. I, I would do, I would do anything just to be around people so I could observe. It was better than going to grad school for sure. And a lot cheaper. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is the most valuable thing you learned in your early days at NBC that you've, you have applied through every single job you've had? what not to do. Oh, wow. That's a great answer. I, I learned how to treat people well, how mm -hmm. to help people in a discreet manner if they needed help, uh, not to toot my own horn while doing it. Um, there's a wonderful chapter in the book of um, me being backstage at the 1977 Emmy Awards. And there was a um, a famous clip, I'm sure some of your people have seen it before, it's on YouTube, uh, mm -hmm. John Travolta accepted an Emmy Award uh, posthumously for a woman that he'd been dating who died from breast cancer, Diana Highland. Uh, right. They had co-starred in the movie The Boy in the Plastic Bubble together. Yep. And my job as a page backstage was to take the celebrity with their trophy, take them back to a press area so that they could 
take pictures and be asked questions. Well, John came off stage and he was, and even when he was on stage, he was crying. And he came backstage and he just sat in a metal folding chair with his, with his hands in his head, sobbing and like ugly crying, sobbing, Mm -hmm. shaking, crying. And I grabbed a bunch of tissues off the makeup area and I handed it to him and the tears were coming out of his eyes. And I looked at him and I said, you want to get out of here for a while? Yeah. So I hid him in one of the dressing rooms and I stood in front of the door and people are like, where's John? Where's John? We want to see, you know, and I was like, you know, (laughs) and when he composed himself, uh, he came out of the dressing room and I, I, we walked hand in hand, took him down to the press area and he gave my hand a little squeeze and that was it. And I thought, Oh, okay. I got through that, that, and I thought, okay, that's the hardest thing I'm going to do all night is, is do that. And then Alfred Hitchcock arrived (laughs) (laughs) and 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 my friend jeff garrett and i were quite literally carrying him backstage because if anybody that's been in theater or television there's there's cables that are backstage and and scenery and props and i just didn't want to drop him and right right. um, when i was in college i did my senior paper on hitchcock and i was dying to talk to him and you know become his new best friend and you know you have to be professional and finally he turned to me and he said you're doing a very good job. And I said, I did my senior paper on you. Ask me anything about you. And he kind of smiled at me and Jeff and I got him backstage and quick ran and the curtains opened and the world could see Alfred Hitchcock at the Emmy Awards. That is great. I, my, my friend is the biggest Alfred Hitchcock fan. I mean, all her tattoos, she, we go out on the road together. She's one of my best friends and she's a great comic. Her name is Joanne Filan and she's got every tattoo is from an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Um, on her arms, on her hands, like the whole thing. And it's, 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 she's like, it's incredible. The artwork is amazing. Where, too. Did, where she does she one. live? She lives in Nutley, New Jersey. Ah, Cause you know what, when the, when the weather warms up a little bit more, she's got to go out to that Shambhala place. That's um, it's maybe 40 Ooh. minutes outside of LA, but Tippi Hendren is still there. And she runs this oh. uh, sanctuary for um, big cats that have been abandoned. Oh, no way. And there's like, she has like a little, um, jungle gym area they put like fake crows on it uh so it looks like it's from the birds i mean oh my god she would like totally flip for this place as well as like loving the cats but they do tours yeah. during i think it's every saturday you can go there and uh see the cats and have a picnic lunch it's a, a wonderful place oh that's incredible we're cat people too she's got two cats i got one cat we send each other cat videos constantly so you just you hit all the nails on the head right there oh, cats. i'll show you i was there Don't- I'm going out of frame, but is, yeah, no, it's fine. This is in my office because I went to Shambhala. That's oh my one god, of the beautiful, what a beautiful babies cat. that's there. Yeah, yeah, that is so cool. I don't know if you could see before, but it, I mean, it's a blurred background. But I forgot he was in here. My cat Bean was standing up on the chair. Sometimes he sleeps in my office, and I don't realize he's even there because he's so quiet. And he's now he's I don't know where he is now, but he was walking around on my desk, and I was trying to get him to like not get into frame. <laughs> I was like, just let's just not. He's not. He's not being professional. No, he's totally not. No, <laughs> early pan, early pandemic, doing Zoom shows and shit like that. Every now and again, somebody would just see a cat butt on screen. I'd be like, I'm so sorry. I I have not got this down yet. Well, that was, that was <laughs> his Alfred walk. Hitchcock moment going through the frame. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, oh my God. Uh, it's incredible. I, I can't wait to actually get a hold of your book. I know you sent me the synopsis. Uh, I'm blown a little behind the scenes stuff. I'm going to read it from, you know, 
cover to cover. And uh, well, you've got the PDF. Um, I gotta, you've got the PDF there. So uh, is it the PDF, the full, or just the synopsis? Full thing. Oh, it's the. Oh, you gave me the. I'm so sorry. I read the synopsis. You just got it a couple then, hours ago. So the how. I did. Yeah, yeah. But look at yeah, the pictures that's first. Okay. There's a lot of real fun pictures in the middle. I will. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to splice it into some stuff when you see this all edited. Um, I've got to ask you the last three questions that I ask every guest that's been on the show. Um, so uh, first question is a bit of a softball one. But if you go back in time, talk to your younger self and give yourself a piece of advice that would help you today, what would it be? Don't wait till you're 68 years old to publish your book. <laughs> Solid. Solid advice. Um uh, second question is what had to end in your life, good or bad, that led you to where you are today? What had to end in my life? Mm -hmm. Say it again, to begin. Good or bad, that led you to where you are today? I think the only good thing to come out of the pandemic was the realization that if not now, when, if not me, then who? Ooh, and I had that realization. And that's the only thing that really gave me this confidence to even try to do a book. Hmm. Is that, a, is, is that okay? Anthony? That makes, no, that's a great, great answer. And I, I think, you know, I, I do want, actually, no, I might, before I ask you the last question, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your perception of the pandemic, maybe how it, because you were, you were writing this during the pandemic, you said. Yeah. I love that answer. I mean, I think the pandemic changed a lot. I think it changed a lot in the entertainment industry. I think it changed a lot of people's lives who are just unhappy with their job, their spat, whatever it is. For you personally, I, I'm actually doing a paper for Columbia about guests that I've had, so I, I will be happy to include you as well. Is there anything for you personally other than, you know, it gave you the impetus to write this book, but did it change your perception of the way you were living your life beforehand to the outcome? I mean, we're still in it, technically. I mean, it, there, there's, I mean, it's, we're still suffering either mental anguish from the residual effects of it, you know, if you lost people, et cetera, but is there anything you feel changed your perception of the way you were living your life? I definitely reached out to more people that I probably wouldn't have and thanked people for things that they completely forgot they had done that influenced me. And wow. I really felt that was important to acknowledge those people. And they would say things like, well, that was no big deal, but it was to me. And that's what this time has given me time to do is to say thank you. That is beautiful. That's a great crystallization of it. Is it is it something you've been able to carry with you after the fact? Do you think do you, do you still feel the impetus to reach out to people? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, again, last Saturday, I had a book signing in Burbank. And one mm -hmm. of the women who showed up, I had not seen in 45 years. Wow. And I was able to say to her, you know, it's because of this that it gave me the confidence to do that. And she was like, really? I did, I did that for you? Uh, yeah, it was important for me to tell her that because she really was, she was a few years older than me. And I unknowingly was modeling my behavior after hers. So, wow. yeah, I, I, I needed her. I needed to say thank you for that. 
Yeah, that's so important to do. I, I'm I, I the connection is the thing I think that um, led me to do something like this to begin with anyway, because a lot of it was like, you know, uh, I never wanted to do a podcast. I like being a stand up comic. I like being on the road. I'm a very busy person. So I like kind of being, you know, uh, whatever. But then you're left with doing nothing. So I, I called it dystopia tonight um and then started talking to yeah i mean and plus the the weirdest thing about that is such a double-edged sword because uh i didn't intend it to be dystopic forever but literally <laughs> everything i mean it just doesn't stop like i really thought like this is going to be defunct at some point what a bummer and then i was like oh no it just keeps going which is nuts but um but it, it wound up being this thing where like you know uh I had musicians on that I loved and admired that I never would have gotten to speak with if I hadn't been doing comedy in the first place or doing this. Then I got to have comedy friends like Lewis Black come on and Rita Rudner and like people that I had met over the years that I admired. But what was cool was seeing, um, and even you mentioned some people that I that I'd had on or, or, or connected or whatever. Everybody kind of connected to somebody else, and it's the weirdest thing. You know, our brains are programmed to see patterns. But I used to do these these shows Monday through Thursday um every night live wow. at 8 30 and just because of how compact it was and and everything like people's stories overlapped and i'm like i don't even know if they realize that this person knows this person but then sometimes i would just send them stuff and it was like i had no idea this person admired same thing like i had no idea that i uh this person even knew who i was when we were back at the comedy store or this person had this and it's, I mean, you know, I, I'm only one, I wish I could do more with it, but what you're doing in your own life is 10 times. Like, it's so important. Well, it's so nice to, it's for people to hear. Thank that. you. But the, you know, you were talking about other things I learned along the way doing this is, mm -hmm. um, I, I wasn't afraid of somebody saying no to what I was oh. doing because in my, in they'd already, they'd already said no. So what could they do? Say no again. So, um, <laughs> right. I, I, I did not know Alan's why bell and Alan, oh. for people who might not know, you know, he was there day one from Saturday night live was Gilda Radner's dear friend wrote a lot for her as is still writing and producing comedy on his own. He's a brilliant man. Yep. I never knew him, but in the book I have, um, a handwritten letter that Gilda sent one of the NBC pages. And, wow. and, and what you learn when you write a book is that you've got to get permission to use these sort of things um, in the book. You can't just willy-nilly do things. So I reached out to Alan's Y. Bell through Facebook. I said, hi, you don't know me, but explained mm -hmm. the circumstances. And I said, do you know who controls the Gilda Radner estate? Because I would like to get a photo release to use this. Ten minutes later, I had her brother's private email address and less than an hour later, I had a photo release. Wow. So I don't know if the Shelley before the pandemic would have thought to do that or would have been as what I call my Lucy Ricardo thinking cap. I don't know if I would have thought <laughs> to think outside the box to do that. Um, right. I have it with a letter from Joan Rivers in the book, too. And I reached out to her person and said the same thing. Um, I. I, I think I became a little fearless because, you know, whoopee, we're all going to die. We didn't know with COVID what was going to happen. Yeah, that was great. So um, <laughs> I think that's just the freedom of it. Yeah, I, I think that it liberated me that way, too. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I um, 
uh, in, in doing this when we were trying to book guests, because normally the way a podcast goes is when you start one, you ask everybody that is freely available that you know personally and then you hope you know your dumb bullshit gets you know you banter like every other podcast like hey i might have and i and i just i'm not the type i don't have a lot of patience for for that kind of shit so when we started um i had seen a movie that i liked and i wound up reaching out to the direct to the director that it was getting some attention on amazon prime oh and it was a far it was a ridiculous movie but they knew it was ridiculous so it was a great it was called velocipaster and it's hilarious about a pastor who turns into a velociraptor. It's it's genuinely, <laughs> it is it is that, that I old so- chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> you better believe I'm clipping this and posting that because that is they'll you you have to please if you have time and a friend that you could watch nonsense with, please check that out because it is they know they have no budget. They didn't have a budget. I think they did this for like the I, when I spoke to them it was like a, a such a small amount of money but they they had fun with it and you can tell so i had him uh, the director on the director and the writer on and one of the actresses from the from the movie it was we had a blast right i didn't know what the fuck i was doing <laughs> then i wound up i really didn't i was like this is ridiculous but that's the best Yes, exactly. And it was it was awesome. Second guest I had on was this punk rock musician that I love called Frank Turner. His name is Frank Turner. He's from England, but he tours all over the US and and all over the world. He's amazing. I just, you know, um, saw him again in concert. Recently, we hung out. Uh, And then that was great. That was the second episode. Somewhere down the line, I called Ed Asner on the phone. And I went and that's what you I mean, what you just said about like trying to reach out. But like, I was like, I don't what do I have to lose? I'm going to call him if he hates me or, or doesn't want to do this thing. And I wound up having several conversations with him on the phone before he wound up becoming a guest. He was just feeling me out, I guess. And he also happily shitting on me, which is great because I was like, oh, my God, this is Lou Grant. You know, just just, you know, it's just amazing. So um, but yeah, and it was it was like that. And I'm I'm you know, it is weird that we all you know, what's cool is that we sorry, this is the ADD. We, we all had um, we all I, I like that that is a shared experience in one way or another that I feel we all had during COVID. You know, that's a silver lining type of thing. We were kind of, I feel like a lot of people were like, I'm going to do something I've never fucking done before, because what does it matter? And lo and behold, you know, we found new pieces of ourselves. Well, I hope for the most part the that people thought of it in a way of uh of being kind to people and not mm. and not you know just calling people up and say you know i've always hated you, uh, you know? <laughs> oh and you know so that's funny? now you mentioned sweet ed um mm. a friend of ours was best friends with with ed and passed away and we took his dog after he passed away and and we knew oh. that ed loved Dudley and um, called Ed and said, hey, you know, we've got Pataki's dog. Do you want to come see Dudley? And Ed came over to the house and played with Dudley. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is so sweet. I, I, I see. OK, you know what? Can I can I keep you for a little bit longer? Do you mind? I'm fine. I, I don't have to go to the bathroom or anything. OK, <laughs> great. Even if we did. But like, OK, I'm going to run. Th- can I run through people that I've had to see if you knew them from classic TV? Uh, stars that you might have run into is that because I know Ed Bagley's coming on tomorrow and I think you know Ed. Okay, right? and you know I I ju- he he I don't think he knows me, but I was at um a, an event with he and Glozell Green. Glozell's my friend. 
Oh, wow. And, okay. Okay. And, um, and I could hook you up if you, you know, if you want to talk to her, she's, she's That'd be lovely. But, yeah. um, in reading Ed's book, he, I don't know if you know this part about it. He had been told that his mother really wasn't his mother and yeah. that his mother was an NBC page. Right. Yes. That is, that is wild. Um, Ed is fabulous. You're going to have the best time with him. He, I, I had him on early in the pandemic. Um, and, uh, and we very nice man. We had a, a great time because I had had Ed Asner on first, then Mike Farrell. Oh. Um, and do you, do you know, Mike? No, I, I kind of, I kind of like the, um, the side of the street that you're walking on with these guys. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, they're, they're just, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm a, so, uh, Joanne, who's the Alfred Hitchcock fan, she and I are huge mash fans, like to the point where we will get to a destination to do a gig. And then one of us will race for the other to see in our hotel rooms, which channel has mash on. Okay. When like, you come to, out, you're going to keep my phone number and I, I'm going to, I'm going to show you off of Las Virginis road where I grew up in Calabasas, that opening mm -hmm. shot with the mountain for mash. No way. Yeah, that's oh, there. Oh, that's so yeah, cool. Yeah, we'll go have a picnic. It's now um, the Santa Monica Mountain Conservancy now owns the land, and it's uh, hiking trails and things like that. I won't make you hike wow. too far, because do I look like a person who likes to hike? <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. That's so sweet. Yeah, that was – so we so Mike, Mike came on, and then we had um, – the first time Mike was on, we had um, – um, you know, uh, um, oh my, my sweet holy hell! Uh, His wife, Hot Lips Hulahan. No, Hot Lips. No, I had Shelly Fabre oh, on as well, the, uh, but that was Loretta. Later. Loretta Swift. Yeah. So Loretta came on to surprise Mike. So we had that. That was very nice. And then I had Mike on again. And then Ed Bagley came on, and we had a blast. And the two of them, you'll like this story. So uh, the three, Ed, Ed Asner, Mike Farrell, Ed Bagley, they all know each other. Ba Ed Bagley lives next door to Mike. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Mike, Mike and I had to become friendly and stuff. So he would just check in with me to see, you know, how everything was going and, and who I was having on. So at the time I'd had Mike on and I said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm having Ed Asner on. And he goes, Ed's a good friend. I'm actually having lunch with him later today. Uh, but when you see him, make sure you tell him I said hi and I love him. And I go, great. And in my head, I'm like, icebreaker. This is going to be fucking fantastic. I can't wait. So uh, and and true curmudgeon fashion, I get um, Ed Asner on and I've got this in my in the back of my head loaded, ready to go. We say our pleasantries and I go, hey, and by the way, uh, Mike Farrell was a guest on the show early on. He told me to tell you that he loves you. And without missing a beat, he goes, fuck him. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, no, I don't know. Do you not? And he was like, he's like, you tell him. And it was just great. So then cut to the end of the uh, end of that night. Mike Farrell calls me to see how it goes. And he's like, how was Ed Asner? And I said, Ed, Ed, Ed was great, but I told him what he said. And he laughed out loud. He goes, that's hilarious. He goes, who are you having on next? And I said, Ed Bagley is actually coming on next. He goes, I'm a good friend of Ed's. Tell him I said hello. And I went, really? <laughs> <laughs> really, Mike? We're going down that road again? Um, I'm trying to so think who else who do we else know? I... Okay, so Shelly Fabre I had on. That's Mike's wife. Um, and obviously, you know, she's Shelly for Um, I just sent her a script that a buddy of mine had, had stumbled upon cause he was friends with Jerry Lewis and it was her aunt was on an episode of the Jerry Lewis show and it had Nanette February and her lines and stuff in it. So I was like, you know, I know who would like this. She, they're a friend of mine. Can I, can I send this over? 
And um, and he was like, absolutely. So he mailed it to me and I mailed it to her and they were like, oh my God, this is crazy. Um, so who else? I think- Do you want me to give you um, Roselle's address too to contact her? Yeah, as soon as I, I'm going to ask you the last question, but, I, uh, but as soon as I go through a couple more people, I'll ask you the last question and then you could give me that information. Oh, I'll just we'll send you an email. Oh, great. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. And we'll exchange phone numbers too, because then that way we can, um, I can just call you right away when I'm in. Um, let's see. Who else? Um, um, Austin Pendleton was on. Do you know Austin? I don't know him. I know his work though. Wow. That's a cool, he was that's great. A cool get. It was a great get. And can I tell you the most, probably the most relaxed podcast guest, he did it from a restaurant with a glass of wine. Wow. And when I tell you, and at first I thought, oh my good sweet Lord, I'm literally interrupting this man's, but he is at, he eats there all the time and they love him there. And he had his own, he was left alone. And every now and again, he would just order another glass of wine. And the, the, he would just keep telling like he just didn't want to leave. And I was like, this was like two hours went by. And I was like, this is amazing. So he was very cool. And the sound was okay with all the ambient noise. No, uh, it was a, it was a hell of an episode to edit. And I don't know that I could get it, but he was, he was still very close to um, his mic and his computer anyway, to the point where like, I was like, he might fall asleep. I don't know. Cause he was just very like this close to the screen and like, it, but just a just a great great conversationalist, great person to talk to. Um, dropping names like crazy, which was like the other thing that I was like, I don't even think I can keep up with. Like, I'm pretty good with like, you know, old Hollywood stuff. But I was like, oh my god, he's he's throwing out producers' names and people like I know them, and I'm like just nodding like an idiot. I'm like, oh no, him? Yeah, no, of course. Um, uh, and I, yeah, it was that was why that would be um, like trying to interview Chuck Roden or something. That would be, you know. And that would have been, and, can I tell you who I, and Gr Chuck Roden was one of Johnny Carson's favorite guests because the two of them <sighs> could spar a little bit with each other. And a lot of people thought that Johnny didn't like him, but he loved right. him. The other one, yeah. he loved um, Tony Randall because Tony Randall oh. came with an attitude and came with some stories, you know, loaded, you know, ready to go, buddy hack it right away. So people would think yeah. like, maybe Johnny's not into these guys, but th those were the ones he loved. Right. That's see. It's funny that that like I feel like it takes a different kind of person to watch that stuff and acknowledge like, oh yeah, they like it. They're just this is just good TV. They know it's good TV. Um, it's like um, Betty White and Joan Rivers. I've seen those clips, and they're just going at each other, kind of insulting each other. But my God, they're brilliant. Like they're just so quick. Can um, I put in a plug oh, for? I'll I, I, I'll tell you a good story, sure. and I'll put in a plug for something too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. One of the things that I started doing during the pandemic uh, was helping to curate items for uh, there's a there's a, a wonderful museum in Rochester, New York, the, the Strong Muse Museum of Play. And okay. they're going to be adding on a 5000 square foot space that's going to be devoted just to game shows. Wow. So. A lot of my friends' wives are very happy because their garages are finally getting cleaned out for the that they're gonna have you know old family feud things and old old wheel of fortune. And as a little girl growing up, and I, it, it, this took me a while to realize later, but on on the old game shows, women like Kitty Carlisle, Arlene Francis, they were funny and pretty and smart and on the mm -hmm. same level playing field as the guys. Yeah, and absolutely. They, they weren't Donna Reed. They weren't Beaver's mom. They were their <laughs> own women. 
So yeah. I guess in a way, subconsciously, I really was attracted to that and I wanted to be that also. So mm -hmm. I've spent a lot of my career working in the game show industry. And one of the shows I worked on was a show called The Liars Club that Alan Ooh. Ludden and he yeah. was the host and his wife, Betty White, would be a frequent mm -hmm. panelist. So when Betty passed away, I reached out to her assistant. And this is another one of those things that maybe before the pandemic, I wouldn't have done this, but give it a shot. The worst they can say is no. Sure. And yeah. I reached out to her and said, hey, we've got this museum being put together. It's going to be the National Archive of Game Show History. And when mm -hmm. you come across a bunch of game show crap that you're going to throw away, could you please consider donating it to us so that we can have an area to you know, help celebrate Betty and Alan's contributions to game shows? Well, the assistant gave us this huge list of things and some of Betty's childhood toys and papers of Alan's. And then at the very bottom, wow. she said, would you like one of Betty's Emmy Awards? And we're like, uh, yes, please. So oh my God. we have permission from the Emmy people. And right now, if you go to the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, in a glass case, mm -hmm. you'll see one of Betty's Emmys with a little light on it saying, coming soon, the National Archive of Game Shows. Wow, that's incredible. Oh my, see, that's another great out, out of the pandemic kind of, you know, story too, that you did that because, oh my God, that is, in, that is incredible. Good Lord. If any of your listeners have game show memorabilia, mypeacocktail at gmail.com, send it to me. I, I send me a picture. I'll see if we can get it in the museum, get you a good, good tax write-off. As you just said that, I bet you, I know one guy who listens very, very frequently who I, who I, he's DM me a couple times if he's listening. Uh, I, I, I bet you any amount of money he's got some, he's got some cool, he's, he's, he saved some interesting things from, uh, he's like a fan, like a diehard fan of like, you know, those kind of TV shows grew up on that kind of stuff. Shit. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so I bet you he's got some good shit. Okay. My peacock tail uh, T A L E at gmail.com. Hmm. Send me a note. All right, we, we, we want yeah. to make this, oh. um, a must to must must go to destination. Yes. Um, I was thinking, I just found somebody else that I think you might know of. I don't know if you know him, Bill Persky. Oh, I don't know him personally, but my God, I know his work. So, okay. So this is another mind blowing thing, right? Had him on the show once. I am the biggest Dick Van Dyke show fan. I know every episode by I, the no, no, no. I'm the biggest Dick Van Dyke show fan. Oh, all right. All right. I saw oh, this is so good. Okay. What's the I gotta name know of your Sally favorite Rogers cat. Um, um, oh my God, you're, you're, um, it's, um, oh my God, what is it? I'm blanking. Um, oh, sh I could see her in Ghost of a Chance <laughs> when she's knitting something for her cat and she says, I'm knitting this. Ah, oh, I, yeah, I'm blanking. What's, what's the name of her cat? Mr. Henderson. Gonna kill me. Oh, oh right. I'm going to take a moment now and show you something with Sally Rogers. I have a, a Sally Rogers shirt that I that I wear. Oh, that's great! Darn it! I would have I would have killed to have her. Um, she was I wasn't doing anything at the time, but I think I had messaged her on Twitter when she was kind of posting all the time. It probably wasn't even really. It was probably an assistant or something like that. But I was like big fan. Like I deleted my Twitter since, but I was just like, hey, I know you're back on the internet or whatever. You know, and like plugging your documentary, which was beautiful. You saw, okay, I was there um, for a lot of that. Oh. 
Really? Oh yeah. my God. I thought it was amazing. I loved her documentary. Yeah, wait for I was your like, laugh. Yeah, that was, that was so good. Um, and uh, so Bill, Bill, I've, I had on and we became such good friends that he came on again and then he did my MS benefit. And then now we're shopping around, um, you know, knock on, I, I know he's, he's a little under the weather, um, but we're shopping around a little bit of a, a theater tour um, where I was going to show, I, I just wrote this whole thing out where like we show a couple episodes of his that he loves of the Dick Van Dyke show. And then in between, we kind of discuss it, interview him, talk about his life, you know, and do like a Q&A with the audience at the end. I'm like, somebody's got to, you know. Let me recommend uh, what you can do with that, too. Go uh, contact the cruise lines. Oh, OK. All right. That's if, if, That's he, if great... he wants to travel, especially. But um, yeah, yeah, they yeah, would yeah, eat that, that, that up in a second. Yeah, if he can try, I, I hope he can. Yeah, I mean, because I'm, I'm doing it right. I'm, I'm right now talking to Kelly Carlin's a good friend. And um, how about Vince Waldron? Am... Do you know him? No, no. Uh, look him up on Amazon. He's written like, Vince. and he keeps revising it too, but he's written what is considered the definitive Dick Van Dyke book. Oh, wait, I might, <laughs> I might, I might have it. Is that who, is it, is it a, it's a, it's a big book, yeah. right? It's like, it's a yeah, episode I, breakdown, a lot of interviews. He and Carl were good friends. I'm going to have to, I didn't even think you're a genius. I did not think of having that. I love that book. I have studied that book probably since I was a kid. It's it's my mom got me into the show. It's my fa it's like her all time favorite. It holds up. Um, I've been trying to get Dick Van Dyke on and Bill. I've asked him, but I respect their friendship. And he's like, the reason why we're still friends is I don't ask him to do things. And I was like, I totally get it. But I have been trying every which roundabout way. He even Dick Van Dyke even shared one of my posts on Instagram from an episode of this show. Because somebody had told a great story about him. And I was like, <laughs> him and his wife did it. And I was like, reach out to a guy named my... Stu Showstack. Stu Showstack? Okay. Yeah. Stu has a, a, a television podcast that he does, but he, he was just with Dick on Halloween. Um, oh, my God. And, and, and they are good friends. So if there's a chance of getting to him, that would st if just write a note to Stu and just ask him, he would be the one that could Thank do you. it. I will absolutely do that. I would take five minutes with Dick Van. I don't even care if he waves at me from across the street. <laughs> like I, when I first got out to LA, I wound up being um, casually represented by this uh, PR agency called um, Lori Jonas PR. I don't know if you know who Lori is. Wait, that's um, the guy that represents George Slaughter, Jonas PR. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Jonas PR. Yeah. And George Slaughter was on the show too. He's great. George was great. A great guest um and uh uh but uh, so i again i always mention i'm a dick van dyke fan and she goes oh she goes i can tell you where he lives you can just drive he shops like anybody else this was 2015 and i was like sure she did and like a maniac i drove down and of course he was in disney you know he was doing something you know i think like whatever so he was not there but i didn't i didn't like i was too probably scared to go up to the hat like but i was like Maybe he'll be at the grocery store. And I just hung around, you know, that area all day and uh, never ran into him. Uh, I was, uh, yeah, I was like, oh man, that would be amazing. But yeah, Bill Persky was on. George Slaughter, you just mentioned. Um, who, uh, um, uh, Robert Klein, who I'm, I'm sure you know. Um, and uh, uh, Melanie Chardoff. I don't know if you know Melanie. Yes. She's a voice. Melanie was amazing. We ran into she each other with the Andy Kaufman things. 
Oh no. Oh my God. Yeah. She did. Okay. Yeah. Melanie was, was great. She had just written a, um, an amazing book as well. And I had her on. Um, and of course she's probably part of my childhood. She did the voice of the mother in Rugrats. So I'm like, hello. That's like, uh, amazing. Um, who else? TV, TV, TV. Um, I had Mike Binder, but I don't think that's not that. Um, Mike Binder used to be Andy's um, stand-in on Taxi because Andy wouldn't do rehearsals. And Mike, no way. And Mike would be his stand-in. Yeah, that's what Randy told me. I I did not know that. That is insane. And and, and oddly enough, uh, uh, Mike Binder did not tell me that either when he was on. That is wild. Um. um Sorry, I'm like scroll. I had a, I've had a, I've had a lot of musicians on. Um, I had Dion Dion Demucci. That I know you know people know um, him. I remember Dion. Uh, sure. Know, Dion, he was cool. Um, Colin Mocker, he was on um, from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Uh -huh. And um, trying to see if I had any more. If you're talking about musicians, TV. I'm going to hang out. My I have a book signing on November 27th at a place called Book Soup, which is on the Sunset Strip. It's not a particularly big Ooh. store, but it's iconic. And mm -hmm. um, I can say I played the Sunset Strip, you know. And <clears throat> that's great. And just down the road, at the same time I'm doing my dog and pony show, they're having a benefit concert for Denny Lane at the Troubadour. Oh, my and God. And, dude, everyone that's still alive from the 60s is going to be there. Yeah. And, oh, that is. Yeah. And I'm going to oh, hang out there afterward. Mickey Dolan. That, I'm so jealous. Peter Asher, Jeremy Clyde. Uh, oh, Jeremy Clyde was on, and Peter Asher was on. Yeah, Jeremy. Jeremy, was a cool Jeremy guy. Clyde. I don't know Peter. I know Jeremy. Jeremy was. Jeremy came on uh, the MS Benefit twice and and did the episode. Uh, and by the way, if you'd like to do the MS Benefit, I, I we I always have. Write, I do it um, for a couple of years. The cerebral palsy telethon. Get out of here! Oh my god! No, with that uh, is when Henry Winkler and John Ritter were doing it. Oh my god! That is incredible. And what is uh, what I, is I, it and when is it? I do it in the beginning of March. We kick it off for the National MS Society and I stay up for 24 hours and I usually just have on get previous guests uh, on the show. So, you know, almost everybody says yes. Uh, we had 88 people on um, the last time around and I just stay awake for 24 hours to raise money for the National MS Society. Well, count me in and I will tell like you. a Sinatra story or oh yes please yeah i could do like I, I don't know how much how long you need me but as you can see i can talk you, oh yeah yeah oh my well we we like so i mean you know, we welcome people to stay i think the set the the we wound up blocking a couple hours because i was trying to be a little bit more organized because the first time i did it i was like whoever wants to and it was fun like whoever wants to come in came in um bill persky closed it uh this year with um um Kurtwood Smith from that 70s show who kind of stayed on with um, Mark Brazil, who's a good friend of mine who wrote, you know, who, who uh, wrote that 70s show, who created that 70s show. And um, um, so was um, Holy Mother of God. I'm blanking on his name. Um, Jay Kogan, who's a writer for The Simpsons. Sure. But the, the other guy <laughs> who was Arliss. I'm such an ass. I, I, I'm Wool. cutting that part out. Robert Wool was on. So it was Robert Wool, who was a huge fan of. Uh, just per I think people actually, honestly, these guys wanted to hang around because they were like, "You have Bill Persky coming on? That's nuts!" So that was very sweet. Um, but but do I get bonus points up. because I don't know anybody has said who's the guy that played Arliss today anywhere in the United States? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I will send you a box of cookies. That's your that's your prize for a while. Do you like chocolate chip? I, I let me know. Who doesn't? I will definitely do that. Yeah, who doesn't? Exactly. Um, Charles Fleischer is a good friend. He's been on um, a bunch. He's actually coming on again because he put out a book. Everybody's putting out books this this. Well, that was month. my opening line at my book signing uh, Saturday. Was I said I'm so glad I published this before Brittany and Barbara's books came out. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great, that's a great line. Uh, Shelly Goldstein, do you know Shelly? She is on my Facebook page and I used to see her perform, but I think she's living in Vegas now. Uh, she's uh, in between England and Vegas, yes. Yeah. Um, I think, I, well, she I, might be in LA I now. know her through uh, my friend Sharon Goldberg, but I don't, I, I oh, know her okay. to chat with her, but I have never met her. She is a, one of the loveliest uh, funniest human beings I've I've met, and I'm glad I I met her. Um, through, I met her just through this. Just she just came on to do this, and we had a blast doing it. Um, and she's she's amazing. Um, let's see who you do you know? Do you know Jody Duncan? I don't. She is the one who used to write those books, um, the movie books about um the making of any you know those thick yeah. books that were like the making oh, of whatever. Wow. She authored those books and. Uh, she did the making of Jurassic Park and I'm a wow. huge, huge, huge Jurassic Park nut. I could do the movie in a blackout word for word. Um, and, uh, she was so cool. Like we had such a good time, uh, cause she'd retired. She was done. I think the pandemic had shut down that whole end, like that whole thing. Uh -huh. They were like, she was done anyway. Um, but I was like huge Jurassic Park fan, uh, yada, yada, yada. And she told me this story about how nice Spielberg and the producers and stuff were that when the weather was really bad on the island, they everybody got these uh, jackets, these Jurassic Park emblem like uh, staff jackets. And they got them for her and her guy who, who were like doing interviews and writing everything down. And she was like, oh, I don't, I'm not staff. She goes, no, you're staff. This is great. And I was like, that's the coolest fucking thing. I can't believe you have a jacket. She sent it to me in the mail wow. with a note. And she was like, it's just sitting in my closet. I'd rather it be with a true fan. And I was like, head explode. Like, it's, I've, I've not worn, I won't wear it. I've, I will treasure that thing and, you know, until they bury me in it. Um, <laughs> but, but that's, uh, yeah. So, you know, Peter Asher, um, trying to, I mean, I've got, I've done over like 200 something episodes. So it's been, congratulations. Just, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's been nutty and great. And, um, I plowed through this. I was so nutty. Like I was so lost during the pandemic that I was like, people were like, are you okay? I'm like, no, <laughs> like I'm kind of okay. But also like I was, I was doing that thing where I'm so used to being on stage at nine o'clock at night that like it would get to that point in time before I was doing this. I was like, Hey, where are you from? What are you doing? And people were like, we're your family. Stop doing it. Exactly. Uh, and I was like, you're right. You're right. I'm uh Megan Cavanaugh. Do you know Megan? Don't know Megan from league league of their own. She was, uh, um, Marla Hooch. I saw the movie. I can't remember who I'll look her up. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's great. Um, yeah. There's just a bunch of, I'm trying to think Kathy Ladman, uh, Billy Van Zant, Stevie Van Zant. Um, yeah, it's just, it, you know, there's Rob Bart, like those people or whatever, but that's the, I'm glad we went through that list though. Cause you got some, you know, exactly the same people. So it's nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's a shame that you can't come out here and, you know, hang a little bit. I, you know, I understand. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm think I'm supposed to be, so I'm start, I just started booking other shows, um, through Janet, like Janet for 2024. My goal is by April to be back out in LA because the, I, I, I do the ice house, the comedy and magic club. Uh -huh. 
and um, flappers uh, like sure. regularly when I'm out there. And and this little place in San Juan Capistrano, because the apparently the uh, senior citizen community thinks I'm their grandchild. I have no idea why they like me out there, but they do. I, I really it's the weirdest thing, but like they will come out and see me in this little theater. So I'm like, all right. Well, um, Flappers is about maybe five miles from where I live. Oh, perfect. I love Flapp. Flappers was my little home club when I lived out there. They were very, very nice to me. So um, I always go, I always go out there, but yeah, I'm, I might be out there in April. I'd love to come and meet you and hang out. And Absolutely. And, just, and I, and yeah. I'm assuming like when you're doing your gigs, you're promoting them on your social media so I can follow you there. Yeah. Do you have, are you on Instagram? Yes. Okay. What is your Instagram? I mean, we may have already followed each other, but what's your Instagram? My peacock tail, T-A-L-E. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> I think maybe we did. Maybe we didn't. I don't know. Let's see. Man, peacock tail. We are following each other. Perfect. Great. Excellent. This is. Um, I always say that my peacock see. tail, and I spell it because, um, I I foolishly or intelligently, I haven't figured it out yet. When I was writing the book, I had Jack Hanna's adventure show on on the TV because I can't uh-huh. be around quiet too long, and he was talking sure. about peacocks, and I got it with NBC Peacock Peacock Tail. And That's so I, I have Jack Hanna to thank for my title. And I, I quick went on GoDaddy and secured the website and got it on Instagram and got it on what was Twitter. And it's like, okay, that's it. That's the title of my book. Phenomenal. That's so great. Um, I will let you go. I'm going to ask you the last question because I haven't asked that that yet. And then I'll make this look all pretty and stuff when we post it and, and everything. Um, so last question it ties into the theme of the show. If this was a genuine dystopia, more so than it already feels like it is now, but let's say you wake up and you find out it's the last day on earth. What do you think would be happening? Do you think it's gonna be government collapse that does it? Zombies, aliens, um, climate change, and what was gonna be your epic death? How do you wanna go out? Death by cheesecake. <laughs> do you, uh, you and I are going together. That's, that's exactly how I wanna go. <laughs> Phenomenal. And what do you think is going to be happening? Do you think what's going to be the final straw? I don't think there'll be a final straw. Oh, all right. I think that um, uh, eventually I think that um, people are going to have to adapt. We always mm-hmm. have. We always will. When I was in high school, the world was going to come to an end. When I was, when I was in the elementary school, we did duck and cover drills. Um, right. The world changes, the world adapts. And um, as much as we should fear technology, we should also be really happy that someday they can take a little tissue from me and put it in a machine and go, okay, in five years, she's going to get cancer. So uh, let's start giving her this stuff now so she doesn't get cancer. So I, I think the world will go on, but people have to be willing to change beautiful statement thank you so so much for doing this i really appreciate it i know i know you, you didn't know me so you didn't have to do it and i i'm glad you did <laughs> now can i have my children back yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never. No. Uh- dystopia tonight